Manufacturing is not growing in South Africa. Over a decade between 2010 and uh, 2020, an economy which has been moving from 3% annual growth to basically 0 0.9, 0 0.4, 0 0.5. Right now, if you ask the DA to get 1,000 students, they couldn't do it at an event or whatever. They couldn't do it. The EFF has done very well at organizing these university campuses. I've seen so many rallies, events. They've got, they've got volunteers for days at this particular point. Already, the Office of the Public Protector has become a political put football. Even if the review is successful, she is in the office. She won. She got the seat. The Cizwe Mbofu Welsh Experience Podcast. Welcome to a guest analysis segment on SMWX. I'm Jamie Mighty, and I'm going to be looking at three topics today. Number one, the midterm budget. Number two, what's been happening at university campuses. And finally, the appointment of the public protector. Jumping straight into the midterm budget analysis, the first thing that I think is important for us all to think about is productive capacity. Productive capacity. That matters. And I'm going to tell you why it matters just now. It matters because the economy has not been growing. In fact, over a decade between 2010 and uh, 2020, what the data indicates is an economy which has been moving from 3% annual growth to basically 0 0.9, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, those kind of numbers. And the average growth is under 1% in that 10-year period. There was obviously a bunch of factors that changed those metrics during COVID and it got really bad and then it got a little bit better. And now growth has gone back to 0.9. So the growth over the last 14 years has been lethargic. The South African economy is not going. Now, productive capacity refers to the maximum output that an economic system can sustain over a period of time without increasing the input of resources or, or causing a deterioration in quality or performance. That's an economic definition. In technical terms, it's determined by a number of factors, including amount of physical capital available, level of technology, efficiency and intensity of resource use and the skill level of the workforce. In order for South Africa to grow, there has to be a growth in the productive capacity. Now, when the minister gave his speech, he mentioned some highlights. He said, listen, the tourism sector grew by more than 70% in the period, and that's been driven by, you know, more than 5 million international tourists. He said, Agriculture expanded by 7.8% in the period compared to 2022. And then he said transport, communication, and uh, construction also received growth. However, there's one big word that's missing there. Manufacturing. Manufacturing is not growing in South Africa. And I'm going to dive into why it's not growing and why that's relevant for thinking about the budget. Because a lot of people paid attention to the debt. You know that South Africa is approaching six trillion of debt and that the monthly payments are now so significant. I think it's 1.2 billion 
that is being paid per day towards paying off the debt. And the interest payments are getting worse and worse as the South African credit rating is getting worse as well due to a variety of factors, including gray listing. So the debt is rising, but the income is not rising. And it's my submission for your consideration that that is not happening because of the big M, manufacturing. Now, what are the manufacturing numbers and what do they say? When you look at the percentage of manufacturing output that South Africa has for stuff such as textiles, electrical machinery, furniture, motor vehicles and parts, it's really low considering where it could be. So let me break them down to you. Textiles, fabrics, the kind of stuff I'm wearing, you're wearing, everyone is wearing, unless you were just watching this thing, you know, um, in your, in your, what do they call them, birthday clothes. But I assume you're watching this somewhere on your phone, you're dressed. So textiles, percentage of manufacturing output textiles in the last quarter, 4.26%. Textiles, the fabrics that you and I are wearing, the South African percentage of manufacturing output, 4.26%. Electrical machinery, 2.21%. 2.21%. Furniture, 4.27. Motor vehicles and parts, 8.89. These are low numbers in terms of manufacturing output. Basically, South Africa is not making its own clothes. It's not making its own electrical machinery. It's not making its own furniture. This stuff is coming from somewhere else. It's being imported. And that's a problem. That's a part of the indicator why the productive capacity is low. Now, the manufacturing sector in and of itself, it contributes 13.9% to the GDP. And I would submit to you that's very low. 139 is very low. But it only employs 10.4% of the workforce. So if you're trying to deal with unemployment, the manufacturing sector is where you deal with that unemployment. If you're trying to deal with the fact that there's not enough money coming in, you've got to improve your manufacturing. You can't just say, we're improving tourism, we're improving agriculture, we're improving construction and this other sector without actually improving, one, your manufacturing, and two, your mining. And the mining sector in and of itself has been facing some decline. So the big revenue generators are not pulling in the money, and that's part of the reason why there's a challenge right now productive capacity. Now, why is it difficult for South Africa to achieve the outcomes that it needs in manufacturing, right? Remember when I mentioned the definition of productive capacity, what I said, skill level of the workforce. Now, the World Economic Forum does what is known as a global competitiveness index, and they measure a bunch of things. And one of those is human capital. And the human capital capacity of South Africa has not been where it's supposed to be. Let me give you the numbers from 2019. These are the pre-COVID numbers. And since the pandemic, they've tried to shift things and be more accommodating and more empathetic about countries recovering. So they're not measuring it quite the same way. But in 2019, pre-pandemic, they were just being very direct and blunt about the numbers. Overall skills, this is out of 141 countries. I'm going to ask you to guess, and then I'll tell you um, the, the answer at the end. So just try to mentally guess and see how far you are. 141 countries, right, participating or measured in this particular index of uh, human capital. Actually, just the whole thing, right? 
Overall skills of the current workforce, where do you think South Africa ranked? Top 50, top 100, bottom 141? What do you think? Just pick a number. The number of overall skills in the current workforce, the global ranking was 101. 101 out of 141. Quality of vocational training, that's the technical vocational institutes. Where do you think South Africa ranked there? We already know now overall skills of current workforce were sitting on 101. Where do you think we ranked in terms of um, quality of vocational training? Pick a number. Have you locked in your number? Going once, going twice, sold. 119 out of 141. 119 quality of vocational training. Graduate skill set. The people who went to varsity, came out of varsity. Where do you think they rank in terms of global rankings? Going once, going twice, sold. If you got 102, you're correct. 102 out of 141. Digital skills among the active population. Maybe you're spotting a trend now. Maybe you're coming up with a number. Digital skills, going once, going twice. If you said 126, you're correct. If you didn't, you're totally wrong. Digital skills of the work population, 126. Skills of future workforce. Future workforce, that's the people in school right now, in the TVETs, where do you think they rank? So you're probably betting somewhere between 100 and 126 now. So you have a ballpark. And the answer is going once, going twice, 107. Skills of the future workforce. All of these indicators show that there's a serious gap in building the productive capacity of South Africa from a skills basis. You're not gonna get more money coming in if you can't build the skills of the workforce. That's something that's very critical to note. Okay, so the minister was very optimistic in his outlook in the budget, but if this, these fundamentals are not shifted, the trajectory, unfortunately, is going to keep going the other way. And that's something that is very critical to note. So that's number one, productive capacity. That's the first thing that I thought was important to bring up in this particular reaction. Number two, the government has chosen what appears to be a policy of austerity. They're making a lot of cuts, a lot of cuts in different places. Now, austerity refers to economic policies that are implemented by government with the aim of reducing budget deficits through spending cuts, tax increases, or a combination of both. There was no tax increase announced, but all of the indications are that there's going to be a tax increase next year. What was announced, however, were budget cuts to a variety of places. And these budget cuts are concerning because they go to things that affect productive capacity. Let's look at them. Basic education, the budget cut was 1.7 billion. Education, 1.7 billion removed. Higher education cut 2.9 billion. So you can already see there's a serious problem here because it's 4.6 billion that has been cut from basic and higher education. At the same time, that schools don't have the resources that they need to educate kids appropriately. And at the same time that university students are saying they don't have money to go to school, they don't have all of the implements that they need. Productive capacity requires that you build the skills of your actual workforce. But the minister came in and cut the engine, the goose that lays the golden eggs, so to speak. Health, 
cut by 1.5 billion. Social development, cut by 2.1 billion. Human settlements, cut by 3.1 billion. Let's think about this logically, right? Let's think about this logically. We know South Africa has got a debt situation. The interest payments are high. The debt payments are high. That has to be managed. But are you not making a logically counterintuitive decision by cutting basic education, higher education, health, social development, human settlements? Because it's not going to necessarily stop the debt from going up but it's going to affect the productive capacity. And fundamentally, growth is required to create the kind of employment that's an enjoyment that South Africa needs economically. You're not gonna get it as you continue to make these kind of cuts. Now, there is an area that is a real area of concern, which was discussed to a degree in the budget statement, but I wanna really paint it out so that you get it. 270, 257 municipalities, only 38 of these municipalities had clean audits, right? The Auditor General, in her last report, showed that there were 268 material irregularities, which accounted for 5.1 billion in material financial losses and recorded a further 4.74 billion in fruitless and wasteful expenditure. So municipalities are wasting money. Municipalities are cutting corners. And in addition to that, consultants are making 1.6 billion consulting for municipalities to do basic financial documents that the municipalities could have done by themselves. And over a period of a, a municipal term, that accounts to seven or so billion rands that are lost through this double, uh, double duplication of function, so to speak. So there's money that is being wasted in municipalities. Money that not going to where it needs to go. But all that the minister referred to was that we're going to make sure that, you know, we, we put them on tighter terms. And what I'm trying to put across is that the problem of spending is not necessarily in the areas where the minister looked. The problem of spending is in the municipalities. It's with the corrupt government officials. It's with a lot of things where people are paying triple. If you remember the Enoch Mkijima Stadium, they paid... 20-something million for basically something that costs, like, by my estimates, one or two million. So that's the kind of money that needs to be recouped and saved. But these cuts, austerity measures, generally do not lead to economic growth. Austerity measures lead to very tough economic times for most of the population, and they do not lead to economic growth. So that's something that I wanted to point out in terms of where I think the attention and direction needs to be. Finally, in that same um, global Com competitiveness index from the World Economic Forum, there's something that they pointed out that was happening to small businesses because small businesses are also drivers of the economy. Now, this is what they said. The banking system overall scored in the top 20 globally. I don't know if you knew that. South Africa is good at rugby, cricket, hockey, and banking. So if you didn't know, the banking sector ranks so high, the e-wallets, the what what, all of these financial services, top-notch. But there was something where South Africa ranked 96th. Top 20 overall, but in that banking system, somewhere they ranked 96th. You want to know where? Financing, financing of small to medium enterprises. 
that was 96 ranking in the world out of 141. That's how lowly our banking system ranked, indicating that there's a serious problem with the financing of small businesses in South Africa. They're not getting money, they're not getting support, and as a result, they're not able to create jobs in communities in the way that they need to, to grow the economy. Number two, another very low ranking, venture capital availability. South Africa ranked 77 out of 141 in venture capital availability. What this means is that people with ideas are not able to access funding in South Africa in the way that they can in other places like America, Singapore, the UK, Germany, you name it. 77th in the world. Even though the banking system is, I think it was 19th or 20th at that time in 2019, the indicators for financing of SMEs and venture capital availability were really low. What does this tell us? It tells us that if you really want to create more generative productive capacity for the South African economy, you need to make sure you up the skills of the, of the workforce and you need to make sure that you fund SMEs and you make venture capital available. These are the things that are coming from the World Economic Forum itself. What you don't need to do is to apply austerity. You can cut the corruption, but don't cut the basic services like education, higher education, because those budgets are very necessary and critical. If you look at the wastage in municipalities, that's where there needs to be direction. The minister was very positive in his rhetoric, saying that things are gonna turn around, but I don't think that is a pragmatic and realistic output, considering that the government is going to continue doing the same thing. Every year they come with projections that are high for the next year, and then they come back in the midterm budget and they say, our projections were too high. Now our reality is that it's going to be bad for this year. But in 2024, 2026, it's gonna be great. Then comes 2024, then they'll say, no, 2025, 2026 is gonna be great. And that's really going to be a challenge. So. My thoughts on this midterm budget is that it cut the wrong things and it's got the wrong focus. And what really needs to happen is that policymakers and also government officials really need to look at areas where they can increase productive capacity and make the kind of investments that are necessary to give South Africa a chance to succeed. And I think the international community is looking for that. If they can see that you're really taking productive capacity seriously, fixing the TVETs, fixing the high schools, making sure that the grades go up, then people are gonna start coming in with new money and that's gonna create the kind of production that we need. Because if the manufacturing continues to underperform, mining continues to underperform, you're gonna keep looking at tourism, you're gonna keep looking at things like that, but it's not enough. We need to make sure that South Africa is not just doing you know, uh, primary manufacturing, but is doing tertiary manufacturing and tertiary industry is functional. So those are my reactions on the issue of the midterm budget. Now, I wanna go to the second issue, which is what has been happening at university campuses. If you have been following, you know that the Economic Freedom Fighters Student, what is EFSC, Student Command, has been basically blowing out their opponents out of the water. They've won SRSC elections, I think, at UCT. They've won them at WITS. They've won them at two big UJ campuses. They've won them across the country, UFS, University of Venda, University of Limpopo, and a bunch of other ones. There are 26 universities in South Africa, and I think most of them 
are now run by the EFF. Or if they're not run by the EFF, they are run by some version of uh, EFF and then PYA. Just for those who are not very familiar with student politics, there are many formations. They, the formation that I want to, the formations that I want to focus on are EFF Student Command and formation that is known as PYA. PYA is an amalgamation. It's actually a, a, a tripartite alliance, if you will, of the ANC Youth League, SASCO, and the Young Communist League. That's how they often compete on, on campuses. So for simplicity, PYA is ANC, if you want to think about it like that. So for a very long period of time, the PYA has been the leading formation at universities across South Africa. And there's also the DA students organization, DASO, that needs to be referred to. They've had presence at universities such as NMMU, as well as UCT, as well as University of Pretoria. But they've been blown out of the water uh, in those campuses. So where do things stand right now? You have some presence of PYA in some major universities, very strong presence. For instance, they recently won PYA, UKZN. But DA has been blown out of the water in their previous strongholds. NMMU, they lost. They lost uh, UCT a long time ago, never got it back. They um, also lost University of Pretoria. There was a controversy, however, at the University of Pretoria because the EFF Student Command won. And then after AfriForum made complaints, um, the university then went and removed the leadership of the EFF and then basically just chose its own leaders based on whatever metric that is just arbitrary and nonsensical. They, uh, they basically violated the fundamental terms of democracy, which is not recognizing the will of the people at their own university. So that gives you a recap. And I haven't gone into specifics on this. I just want you to understand the, the broad scheme of things. EFF Student Command on the up in the universities, PYA holding some ground, Dasso gone. Uh, there are other student formations such as PASMA, but they're not always consistent across the country and they, they really don't matter for our current conversation. So the question then becomes, do student politics matter? Do they matter? Is it just fluff, whatever happens at university? Some people will say, well, you know, many people at university don't care about student politics. You know, they're doing engineering, they're doing medicine, they're doing BCom. They're not focused on university politics, so we shouldn't pay too much attention to it. And the turnout is often between 20 and 25 percent. And therefore, you know, it's not a real reflection of the student body sentiment. There's a partial truth to that. Many students are not really going to vote or pay attention to student elections, but that doesn't mean that the outcomes of those student elections don't matter. I'm gonna use VITS as an example to show you why it can be very important. So we all know that fees must fall happened as a result of protests that started, um, you know, historically at many universities, but then really took shape at VITS University. But I'm mentioning this to point out that that was a critical moment that happened at universities, which affected the national body politic. So they can matter in that respect. Secondly, there are many members of parliament whose careers in politics took shape at universities specifically. One of those um, members of parliament is Nompendulo Mkachwa, who is now the committee chairperson of the Higher Education Portfolio Committee. She was at Wits University 
not so long ago, I think in 2015, she was at Wits University. Fast forward seven years later, she's sitting on a portfolio committee in one of the most important portfolios, I would argue, in, um, in, in parliament. So that's one. Then you've got people like uh, Vuyani Pambo, who are members of parliament. You've got people like Mbuiseni Ndlozi, Floyd Shivambu. You've got also people from the Democratic Alliance who were part of um, student politics. I think Luo Lompiti is one example. There are several um, who are part now of parliament. So if you were to ask yourself how many members of parliament at one point in time took part in student representative councils, you'd be surprised. They are overrepresented there. So student politics are like, if I were to compare with hip hop, they're like rapping at the corner. Everyone who raps at the corner is not going to become a rapper. But B.I.G. started at a corner. Jay-Z started at a corner. D.M.X. started at a corner. Those rap battles, those ciphers at a corner, they can be determinative of your career as a politician. So I think SRC matters also in that respect. But further than that, I think that universities are tastemakers and they are influence builders in terms of political sentiment and political rhetoric, which is why they are so critical to the discourse. So it's my submission to you that the people at universities are respected in their communities. I don't know if, you know, in the black community, the guy who goes to the university, oftentimes he's loved by everyone. He's loved by all of the teachers in his school. He was probably a head boy or he was a prefect or he was some kind of a leader. He was also like is loved by the community and is used as an example. People say, yo, you must be like Sizwe. Sizwe went to Oxford University, got a PhD. Why are you not like Sizwe? That is the typical conversation in communities for every black student who has gone to the university. So what's the significance of that? The opinions of that particular person when they go back to their township, to their village, to uh, their suburban neighborhood are going to be valued quite significantly because they are viewed as being smart, brilliant, and thoughtful on the particular issues. That means their opinion has sway. Sometimes that sway is even more than the sway that we would like to admit, you know, compared to some people who didn't have or enjoy those experiences. If we're at a bribe and we're talking, and there's a guy called Caesar who went to Oxford University speaking. And then there's another guy called Jamie who did not go to Oxford. If Caesar says one thing and Jamie says another thing, let me tell you right now, end of debate, most people will agree with the guy who went to Oxford. And that's the impact of the university students in their communities. They are thought of as leaders, they're thought of as examples, and they have influence. So... It is material when those particular people begin to shift significantly to one political party over another. It's indicative that their age group and their cohort is moving away from one particular school of thought to another particular school of thought. So I submit to you that the prominence, dominance, and the significance of EFF on the university campuses is not insignificant and is not worth ignoring. The final thing I would say to you is that the EFF has done very well at organizing these university campuses. I've seen so many rallies, events. They've got, they've got volunteers for days at this particular point. They've got a volunteer army of young people. I don't know if you know, 21-year-olds, they've got energy for days. I used to be 21. My energy level now compared to when I was 21 is totally different. Can you imagine the manpower value 
to the economic freedom fighters, of having all of these thousands of young people who are willing to put up posters, who are willing to go online, to do TikToks, to do Twitter things, to go into communities, to go into villages. That manpower resource comes with a tremendous value attached to it that I don't think a lot of people appreciate or respect. Right now, if you ask the DA to get 1,000 students, they couldn't do it at an event or whatever. They couldn't do it. If you ask the EFF to get 1,000 students, it's a joke. It's too little for them. They can do it. Significance, the DA has no foot traffic, foot soldiers to go and do the kind of work that is required during an election, whereas the, C the EFF has got an abundance of that. Will that have a material impact on election outcomes? Yes, long and short of it, it will. If you've got foot soldiers, if you've got people willing to volunteer and do work for you and they religiously believe in what you're doing, it's going to happen. Or they zealously believe in what you're doing, it's going to happen. So I think it's quite significant that the EFF has done well in these universities. And I think that they are now the political thought leaders and influencers at the universities. And that has a bearing. Even if they don't necessarily get maybe more than 2.5 million votes in the next election. I'm projecting they'll be approaching about 2.5 million in my own estimations. They may disagree. They think they're going to get more, but that's my view. Even if that's all they get in the next election, it's clearly a sign of a shift generationally because there will be more elections after 2024. And it looks to me like the EFF is ascending and the other political parties are struggling with the most important cohort. The median age in South Africa from the, the census data is 28. So if you get people between 20 and 30 over time, what it indicates is that as those people become between 30 and 40, they are more likely to lean towards your politics versus their rivals. This indicates that the DA is struggling with youth and also the ANC, but the ANC, not as much as the DA, to be fair. Now, I want to move to the third topic, right? And that topic is the appointment of advocate Kolega Talega as the public protector. So it's final now. You know, parliament had its vote recommending her, the parliamentary committee interviews, and she met the threshold and they chose her. Now the president announced, so I want to say some few things, not too much because uh, this has been a very long episode as things stand. Number one, did you notice the timing? Did you notice the timing? So parliament voted like two weeks ago, but President Ramaphosa announced it on the day of the midterm budget, on the day that AGOA was about to start, so that that story would be the number three story in the news cycle. So my reaction to this appointment of Advocate Kolega Talega is that it's problematic. It's problematic, number one, because the perception is that she's being rewarded. What is she being rewarded specifically for? For a very soft report on Palapala. If you recall, in her report, she had a very strange understanding of the concept of conflict of interest. What she emphasized in her analysis of conflict of interest was that, you know, the president wasn't distracted. He was able to be president and whatever was happening at the farm was not taking away from his presidential duties. What she didn't look at was the second element of conflict of interest, which speaks to where you are 
one vested in one side and two vested in another side for material interests. And those two sides do not align. That is the conflict, right? So if you are head of state and you are supposed to be conducting yourself in a particular manner, and at the same time, your business interests could affect how you conduct yourself as head of state, that is the conflict. And by the way, the understanding of most legal scholars is that the perception of a conflict of interest is enough. It's sufficient. That's the threshold. You don't have to, uh, as she says, have a, a, a material conflict versus an imaginary conflict. The perception in and of itself is enough. And all policymakers and, and legislators and ministers should all be trying to avoid perception of a conflict of interest. So her application of the concept of conflict of interest were very, very strange. And compared to what the independent panel had said in its preliminary report, there were a lot of legal issues that she walked away from and didn't look at. And she simply said, that's not my mandate. Her report is being taken on review by the Democratic Alliance and other parties. And it is my legal opinion that they will be successful in that review. But even if they are successful, she now has the job. Seven years a term of office. She has that. And she has it as a result of the fact that when she wrote a report about the person who was fundamentally going to give her the job, she was very soft and light in the writing of that report. And on top of that, when it comes to the issue of perception, she took forever to conclude this report, right? When she came in, the complaint had been lodged and she took virtually a year to, to, to conclude this particular matter. And there's nothing that I would submit to you takes a year in that particular issue. All of the documents and the documentary evidence had already been given to her. It was a matter of applying her legal mind and coming up with a report. So that's number one, the perception of it being a reward. The second thing is the perception of the office not being an objective and independent office. Already, the office of the public protector has become a political football. It has become a political football because one side was saying that Advocate Busiwam Kwebane was a politician. She was aggressively trying to attack the Ramazaposa faction. And now the inverse has happened where you seem to have a public protector who seems to be very eager to protect the president himself. Those perceptions undercut the credibility of the institution long term. And I find that to be an issue. And even the timing, it almost feels as if the president didn't want to stand on his appointment of her because he could have done it on a day when nothing else was happening, right? He took his time. The fact that he did it on the days that there was now, you know, um, a midterm budget speech and then the next day uh, the AGOA uh, forum is starting, that to me suggests that that story was trying to be buried in other stories so that it wouldn't be the lead story and so that it wouldn't get the full scrutiny of the public. So it's happened and I think it's problematic. And to be honest, right now, we find ourselves in a situation where even if the review is successful, she is in the office. She won, she got the seat, but it's something that I think needed to happen with partisan support and if you look at the political support that came for that, the IFP did vote with the ANC for her to get um, to get over the 60% threshold, but most of the major political parties voted against her or they walked out. The DA walked out, the EFF walked out. If you have the number two and the number three party walking out of a vote for an office which is supposed to be neutral, independent, impartial, that already creates problems for that particular office. But she's in the job now. It got announced. Those are my thoughts on that particular issue.
So we've come to the end of this uh, omnibus, if you will, of topics. And I'm curious, what do you think? Do you disagree? Do you agree? What are your views? What are your reflections on the midterm budget, on the role of EFF student commander in university campuses and the next election, and on the appointment of the next public protector? We value engagement on this forum. CISO will be there reading these comments, replying. I'll be there reading these comments and replying. And let's have a debate. Let's continue the conversation. The purpose of all of this is to enrich each other's understanding and thinking on this topic so that we can have a better understanding of the political moment and the decisions we all need to make. Thanks so much for watching till the end. I'm Jamie Mai, and it's been a great episode. Aye, yeah. The Caesar and Experience Podcast. Aye, 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 aye.